Therefore, he has brought all this disaster among them. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, church. In case you don't know me, my name is Rob, and I am one of the pastors here at this place. Um, Let me begin by reading a portion of a song and then a Bible verse. First a song, then a verse. This is our nation, this is our land, this is our future, this is our hope. A land of reaping, a land of harvest. This is our land, this is our home. This is the great south land of the Holy Spirit, a land of red dust plains and summer rains. To this sunburned land we see a flood, and to this great south land his spirit comes. This is a nation, this is our land, this land of plenty, this land of hope. The richest harvest is in her peoples. We see revival, his spirit comes. This is our nation, this is our land. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's a pretty catchy song, powerful verse. It almost feels like they kind of go together. It almost feels like maybe they were written by the same individual. Could it be that if nations claim this verse that I just read in two chronicles, you know, they claim this verse, humble themselves, and pray, you know, as it's outlined in in the passage that Sky just read for us, that indeed God will heal their country from droughts, pandemics, fires, bushfires? Or let's reverse that. What if the people don't humble themselves and pray? Is God going to bring bushfires and pandemics and other sorts as a necessary judgment for not humbling themselves and praying? Today we're wrapping up this series called Cherry-Picked Bible Verses. And I thought to finish it, we could look at a very often quoted verse particularly within the spheres of government sometimes and politics. And it's 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. I don't know if some of you have ever watched in America when a new president comes in, either every four years or, well, either way they do an inauguration, even if it's a reterm. But when they have a presidential inauguration, when the president is sworn into office, the president will often, from histories of this, put their hand on the Bible. Have you seen that before? Now, often the Bible is closed, but sometimes, by choice, the president wanted the Bible open to a particular passage that he can put his finger on. It's interesting, in 1953, Dwight Eisenhower, you know that, maybe you've heard of that president before? Guess what passage he wanted opened? 2 Chronicles 7, 14. 
So did Reagan, by the way. So is that passage, then, a promise to America? Or, or Australia? Or Zimbabwe? Or the Philippines? Or Thailand? Or Mexico? Are, are these promises given, or threats, I suppose, again, however you want to sort of tilt that thing, given to nations. How, how are we to read 2 Chronicles 7.14? What's the proper context? And are there principles that we can draw from it regardless? That's what I want us to explore this morning. What's the proper context of this passage? Because it's a powerful text. And then are there principles of which we can draw from that text? So, proper context, principles to draw from. That's where we're headed. Proper context, sticking with the P's, principles to draw from. You could throw a passage in there if you want. Keep the P's going, but we'll stop. So let's, let's pray as we dive into this text together as a church. Gracious God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that our hearts would be teachable now as your word is taught. And Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our God, our rock and redeemer, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So there are bits of the Bible that are a bit familiar to us. David and Goliath, most people know that story. Noah's Ark. Maybe some of the miracles, Jesus turning water to wine. Uh, you know, some of those things, most people, even if they don't really go to church all that often. That said, when it comes to First and Second Chronicles, this tends to be a portion of Scripture that's either left behind or just kind of skipped over altogether. Particularly, I don't know if you've ever tried this. Have you ever tried reading through the Bible chronologically? And when you get to this bit, it feels very repetitive. Like First and Second Chronicles, I just read all about First and Second Samuel and First Kings and Second Kings. What's going on? I already know these stories, so it feels a bit repetitive. Originally, 1st and 2nd Chronicles were accounted as one book instead of two. And they were called this, the accounts of the days. Did you hear that? You ever have, you ever have nan and, your nan and pop say that? Well, back in my day, the accounts of the days, right? And what do they do? They launch into how life was like, you know, 50, 60, whatever odd years ago, right? That, that's what... Chronicles is. It's the retelling of Israel's history. Uh, hence the title Chronicle, right? It's the annals, the archives, the, the recounting of events from Israel's past, particularly from the tribe of Judah. Something you might find interesting, though, about this, the title itself. Because did you hear what I said, the accounts of the days? 
But if you look down in your Bible, what does it say? Two Chronicles or one Chronicles, right? So where do we get that term from? Actually, that term didn't come until about 400 years after Jesus. Very interesting, a dude named Jerome, who I'm going to drop a word here, wrote, maybe you probably haven't heard this book called the Latin Vulgate. And he titled this, this, forget what I just said about, I don't even know what the heck that is. Listen to the title of what he called these two books. He says, quote, the chronicles of the entire sacred history. I like that. Sacred history. Because when when you're reading these books, it's not simply just reporting some facts. Though that's true. These books are meant to be seen through a theological lens. They're to remind God's people of his faithfulness to them, even when times are difficult, when times are confusing, when when you feel lonely. In fact, it's exactly in those moments when we're at our lowest that we desperately need to be reminded of God's character and his goodness to us in the past. Whenever I'm walking through a difficult season, I find it super helpful to reflect back on different prayers that I might have jotted down years ago in a prayer journal that I have. Why? Because I can be in a particular space at that moment where I feel like the walls are caving in. You ever felt like that? But as I read these prayers from years back, I can see time and again where God kept me, God spared me, and God didn't answer certain prayers that I was praying but I can see in hindsight why he didn't and thank him for it. And I can see how the Lord grew me through that entire process. But I wouldn't know that if I didn't write those things down and I wouldn't wouldn't be in a headspace where I could actually process those things accordingly if I didn't actually reflect back and think, okay, wow, Lord, you've been so good to me here, 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 and here. See, when life seems bleak, we need to reflect on God's faithfulness. When life's bleak today, reflect on God's goodness to you from yesterday. That's likely why the book of Chronicles was written in the first place. Do you understand? The Jews have recently come back from 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And when they arrive back home, a whole lot has changed. There's no king. That was a big deal. No king at all. Instead, they have a Persian governor. Now, to us, that might be like, well, you know, who cares who our premier is, right? You know, I think we have a pretty good premier. I pray for her. But, you know, we think, ah, whatever. But you have to understand, for a Jew living in the Old Testament, having a Davidic king is massive. He's like the savior figure, the anointed person. So they, so they come back. There's no king. And where the temple once stood, what do you see now? A pile of rubble. No temple. It's been sacked, destroyed. And they have no way to protect themselves because the wall around Jerusalem has been destroyed. So put yourself, think about this for a second, put yourself in their shoes. They have no leadership, no means or way to worship, And let me, let me just pause there for a second because we, t- we, we tend to be pretty anachronistic 
when, when we read the Bible. Because we think, what do you mean? They can, I can worship wherever I am, in spirit and in truth. The way you worship back then is through the temple and the priests. You don't, this isn't, you know, um, 2021 where we just go, well, I can, I, can, I can worship right here out and I can, no, no. You, you have, you have no, no more king. You have no more, no, no more way to connect with your God anymore because the temple's now been destroyed and you have no way to defend yourself. How does that sound? Oh, man, I can't wait to get back home. Look at how good things will be. Oh, not really. You could say the future looked rather bleak. So what do you need in times like that? What do you need when the future looks bleak? You need a good, hard look in the rearview mirror to see God's goodness and kindness and faithfulness to you. That's precisely what the author of Chronicles is after. I mean, how does he begin? In 1 Chronicles, he starts with Adam. Uh-oh, this is going to be a long time. Then he moves all the way to the time of deportation, showing his sovereign hand on every single moment of history. Here, here, here's sort of a bird's eye view. If you look up here at the screen, I'll, I'll give you an outline of First and Second Chronicles. So First Chronicles, say the first nine chapters, go from Adam. Reynard, can you pull that up for us, Ben? So they go from Adam to David. And then you see there, it goes from King David, which is a big chunk. You see, look how much, look how much space David gets. Can, can I share just an aside to you? Do you know what's fascinating? Do you know what's fascinating about why he gets so much airtime? And all that airtime, do you know that what's left out in Chronicles? His adultery with Bathsheba? Very interesting. Uh, what else is left out? The, the, his uh, son, who Absalom, who did the rebellion against him. Uh, the rape of his daughter Tamar. That's all left out. Why? Because this is sort of like a patch-up job. This is a, this is a dodgy, you know, this is like, you know, uh, some of our, our, our news today that's fake news and they just want to cover what they want to cover? No. David is operating and functioning as a savior-type figure. And you're gonna, if, you're ever, if you're in a growth group, you'll read in chapter 17 of 1 Chronicles where there's promises made to David. The focus is on David. And how does the very beginning of the New Testament start? Jesus Christ, the son of who? David. You see, there, there's a theme, there's a motif there. Then you get King Solomon who builds the temple. And then lastly, all the kings of Judah until the time of the deportation. Now, where we're at today is two chronicles. So there's kind of the bird's eye view of it. Remember, the book was sort of one when it was written, but we're in second chronicles. And our passage today is really a watershed moment in Israel's history. The first five chapters are going into detail about all the work Solomon did to build the temple. All the people he hired, the construction, how much it cost, blah, blah, blah. And then finally, you, the day arrives. The temple's complete. And now it's time for this massive gathering of God's people to celebrate, to dedicate the temple. In fact, if, if you have your Bible sitting there, go to 2 Chronicles 6. And 2 Chronicles 6, just, I know we read 7, but just go back here to 2 Chronicles 6. Look in verse 12. 
Then Solomon stood before, 2 Chronicles 6, verse 12, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Can you picture this? Just, just, just try to envision this. Reynard, you can chuck up that little caricature of it too. So there's the temple, uh, just a, a rendition you know, of it. And um, go to the next slide, Reynard. So Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had set it in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, listen when he prays, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant. Uh, Remember that I said David is a focus? Look at this. Keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart who have kept with your servant David, my father, that what you have declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand, have fulfilled it to this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, that you have promised him, saying, you shall not like a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word be confirmed which you have spoken to your servant David. Now listen, listen to this. Don't miss this here because you, you can hear a lot of, yeah, God, God, and David, and blah, blah, blah. But I, I love, listen to the theology here. This is, this is awesome. He says in verse 18, sorry, verse um, 16. No, 18 we left off. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Ooh, good question. Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to this plea, O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. Now, You can just picture this, right? Incredible. But don't forget how 2 Chronicles is working. Remember, this has already happened. Still tracking with me? This is like 400-odd years ago. So picture, you're reading this. Remember the situation? I said, put yourself in their shoes. You ever... and, and you're standing perhaps, listen, you're perhaps standing where this went down. And, what do you, and you look around now, and what does it look like? Where's Solomon? Long gone. Where's the temple? Pile of rubbish. What's going on? You ever see like in, in movies where they do those little flashbacks? Where someone goes to like maybe a house that's now abandoned, and they kind of they sit there in the, in the lounge room, and then whoosh, 40 years earlier, you know, happy birthday to you. And it's like this happy memory. And now the house has been burnt and the marriage is destroyed. And it's just like this horrible thing. And, and you, you really feel for the person, right? And you, and you can, and as it kind of comes back and the, the person's holding ash and dust in their hands, you can sort of like still hear the happy birthday and sort of fades off, right? That, that's where, that's the space these Jews are living in. They look around Things are absolutely not what they used to be. 
compared to the, the glory days of Israel. So if you're the author of this book, why are you doing that? Is that just mean? You know, are you just like, look how good it used to be? Sucka, it ain't like that no more. Right? Like, wh- why, why do that? This is exactly when the nation of Israel needs to bust out the old home videos. This is exactly when they need to do this. Why? Because, look at verse 36. It will make sense while, it'll make sense the, the situation they're in right now. If you look at verse 36. Now notice, verse 36 If they sin against you, remember this is Solomon praying, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land near or far. You can almost hear the author going, (coughs) kind of clearing his throat at this point. (coughs) Does that sound familiar? Babylon. (coughs) And then maybe, maybe now the penny's starting to drop, right? as you're reading this. Verse 37. Look at verse 37. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive and pray toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer, and their pleas, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. That Does that sound like the predicament they're in now? Does that kind of give you a little, like now in the flashback, you get to fill in all the little bits and pieces. How did we get here? We sinned. We broke the covenant. Nebuchadnezzar came, ripped us out of here. Now we're back in the land. But the only fact that we're back in the land is, notice, there's repentance. Do you see that? There's God's grace to us. We shouldn't be here, but we are. And then so now, if if you know the book of Nehemiah, what happens? Because they're unprotected, Nehemiah starts to build the wall, right? They need some protection. And they want to start reconstructing the temple, which is what goes down. But then there's this amazing scene. I I don't want to lose us here. I want us to go back to the, you know, the house when it was happy before it was burnt down or whatever. And look at chapter 7. This is an amazing scene. This guy just read this. As Solomon finished his prayer, notice fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire coming down from and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Amazing. I love, you know, I read this in seminary, and I just kept coming back to it. Such a scene, such an amazing, powerful scene, isn't it? And, and you see how human beings who, though made in God's image, are just frail. We're finite. And when the infinite God is, is showing his presence, what do they do? 
What do they fold their arms and they say, I got a lot of questions for you. Isn't it amazing to me? I, I, I'm always amazed when people say, when I get to heaven, I got a lot of questions for God. As if God's going to say, oh, okay, yeah, well, God, fire them away. I'm, did I do everything all right? Well, number one. Number two. Number three. Read the pages of Scripture. What do people do? They fall on their face. <laughs> Read Philippians. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. I know as Westerners, we, we, we're, we like to think of ourselves really highly, right? We're, we're pretty much demigods, you know? But, but you read the pages of Scripture, and it puts you in your place. And so here's this scene. Now, following this amazing week of dedication, right? The Lord appears to Solomon. And, and it's interesting, if you come with me to verse 12... This is where we get our cherry-picked verse. Now, as I read this, ask yourself this. Who is being addressed here? Are there any conditions? What nation is this? And where are they geographically? It's helpful. Last week, Mary said to me, sorry, Mary, to embarrass you, she said, oh, this is really helpful. And uh, something that you, you said stuck with me. She, you said, we need to be very careful how we read this book because after all, it's God's word. And people will sign contracts very carefully, won't they? If it's a bond or if it's your hire, even if you're hiring a car, you're going to read all the fine print. But for some strange reason, this is kind of like what you want it to be, what makes you happy, how you want to interpret it. But that's not the way that God's word was ever meant to be read. And so, when you read this book, friends, it's helpful to ask the who, the what, the why, the where. I mean, if this is God's word and he's spoken, you don't want to put words in his mouth, do you? You don't want to sort of twist it like a lump of clay to shape it how you want it to be, do you? I mean, you want to take it as, as what God meant for it to say. And so, as we read to verse 12, ask yourself those basic questions, the who, the what, the why, the where, Okay. Look at verse 12, chapter 7. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. It's striking when you simply stop for a second, look closely at a verse, just how clear things become, isn't it? I mean, would you agree that verse 14 is situated within a particular moment in time? Yes? Would you also agree that there's a specific or a particular group of people that this is contingent in sort of a if and or there clause? Does that make sense? Yes? And would you also agree that this is in a, a specific geographical location? 
Yes. So then would it be appropriate to uproot this and apply it to, say, the nation of Australia, America, Canada, or fill in the blank? Probably not. Probably not. And here's what I don't want us to miss, though. I don't want us to miss this. That this verse is powerful verse, and it actually functions kind of like a theme in a way throughout the whole book of two chronicles. In other words, it colors the agenda of the book. So do you notice in the prayer what Israel's called to do? Four things. Do you see it? Humble themselves, pray, seek God, turn from their wicked ways. Can you see that? Four things. Throughout the book of two chronicles, you have these five spiritual awakenings or five revivals that happen in the book of two chronicles. You still with me? Big moments. So, th so this, this moment's massive. But you have these spiritual awakenings going on five different times in, two, in, in this book, in Second Chronicles. Each of these revivals is connected with the administration of a king. So you have five revivals, five kings. It's how the king is leading the people, and it's what the people are doing. Hence this verse here, remember? Humble themselves, pray, etc., etc., etc. That you see the revival come. So Rehoboam, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah. Five spiritual revivals that happen, each connected with this king. Each of these kings illustrates in their life, in their administration, what they do, things that are found in this book. For instance, take the king Rehoboam and Josiah. What do they do? They humble themselves. They pray. Josiah, I talked about him a few weeks ago, he wants all of the idol worship to be destroyed. Turn from your wicked ways. And then what do you see? Big spiritual revival happening for the nation of Israel. So again, five revivals. So I, I, what, I, what I don't want to do is just look at this and say, oh, well, you know, gosh, look at this. Two Chronicles. There it is. That's what it means. But see God's faithfulness to his people throughout the whole book of Two Chronicles. Does that make sense? And how actually 2 Chronicles 14 is a very significant, sorry, 2 Chronicles 7.14 is actually a very significant passage. So that's, that's the first thing I want to do on sort of the, on the one level. That's its proper context. But what about the principles that we can draw from this? What are some of the principles that we can see? Well, the phrase, my people who are called by my name, had its first application to the people of Israel as they lived in the land God promised them. Nevertheless, the same God who made this promise to Israel still reigns in the heavens and will still respond to people who humble themselves, pray, etc. So, for instance, the Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. One of the things that's clear in Scripture is people that are proud, they don't feel like they need, or you can see this today, right? 
people that are proud, they don't feel like they need grace, do they? <laughs> because they're pride. But Scripture's really clear, as it is with how God is operating with the nation of Israel, and as it is today, that if you're proud, God actually opposes you. I don't know how that, how that sits with you. But if you're proud, and you don't feel like, you, don't, you won't turn to God in repentance and faith, God is actually a, directly a, a, an opposition to you. But if you humble yourself before the Lord, grace will flow to you through this. Now, I want to say this. The reason I did this series is because a couple things. The, the first is, I'm, I'm a, how do I say this? I'm a bit concerned that some people base their life upon a pocket full, as you were, of cherry-picked Bible verses. Jeremiah 29, 11, Proverbs 18, Romans 8, 2 Chronicles. And my concern is, what they've done is they've built an entire Christianity around these verses, but they're not actually verses that mean what they say. Does that make sense? So, in other words, you've taken fragments of what you want Christianity to be, and you've reinvented a whole other Christianity that's just not Christianity. That's very dangerous. That would be my first concern. My second concern is some people, because they want to feel sort of spiritual or they want to feel, I don't know, they want to feel so a place of significance in, in a local church, have sort of, they can recall certain verses, like maybe some of the ones that we've looked at over the course of the last month. And in an effort to, I guess, validate themselves or smokescreen people or whatever it might be, they can hide behind these verses. So someone can see, and, and, and then you, you, it, it's very pietistic. Do you know that word? Makes you look, makes you look very, very holy. Because in other words, what you can do is you can say, and, and for one, it, be, it, makes you, it makes you weird too. Because, because you're just trying to have a conversation. Like Dan and I are just trying to have a conversation and I go, oh man, looks pretty cold out there today. You know, I, I don't think it's going to rain. Hopefully it doesn't. And, and then Dan sort of smoke screens me with, don't speak that over me. Don't speak that over my day. And then, oh, geez, I don't want to do that. And he goes, Proverbs 18 says, the words have a power of life and death. And if you say it with confidence, it's kind of like, wow, shoot, that's Bible. And I don't want to go against Bible. And I don't want to go against Dan because that's pastor with Bible. So that's like, bad. And so then who ends up, what happens? The person that has grabbed these cherry-picked verses, they use it as kind of a club against people in the local church. So, so that you're, you're not, in, in a way, I'll, I'll give you another example. Some of you have had a very difficult week. And I know that from talking with a lot of you, actually. Now, it's a natural thing that you're going to have about an angst in your life and feel like the walls are caving in. 
But a way that I can take a cherry-picked Bible verse and club you on the head with it is to say something like, well, Jesus said, don't worry. Did he not? So don't worry. And then you're kind of going, oh, man, I feel bad. I shouldn't worry. And then the afternoon comes, and guess what? You start worrying. And then you're probably just going to hide from the person next Sunday when you see him or not want to talk to them because God's prophetess in this church or God's prophet in this church or whatever. Does that make sense? So it's not helpful. and, And I think either there's two things going on with that person, sociologically speaking. The first thing is they're insecure. That could be one option. And their only way that they kind of get their jollies is by clubbing other people with some Bible verses that aren't even in context in the first place. Or they kind of feel a bit spiritual and a bit elitist, a bit pietistic. Okay? That, that's the first thing. Or this, the second thing is, and this is what I hope is the case, is they have good intentions. In other words, they don't want you to not trust God. So they say, don't speak that over your picnic. They, they, they don't want you to not believe that God will bless your life. So they can quote Jeremiah 29 11 at you. So, so their intentions might be good. They want to believe that revival is going to happen in Australia. Hey, let's pray for that. <laughs> I, I'm talking like real, genuine, gospel, spiritual awakening. Like that would be a dream come true. So they, so they want those things. Those are good things. So then they latch on to 2 Chronicles 7.14, right? And you say, gee, you know, what was it statistically today, Dan? If you were here in the equip class, how many, what's the percentage of people that own a Bible? 45% of Australians own a Bible. They actually own a Bible. Think about that. Do you, do you realize that? And like, it's not like these are, like, it's not like we live in a part of the world where these are illegal. Well, not yet. Right? Like, they're, they're, there's access to them. So people don't want, why? They don't want to. They don't care. Why are people here? Why, why are these, see these, you know, up here in the front? Well, no one wants to sit in the front. But why are these, you know, next to joy? Why are those chairs? Why, I mean, this is the greatest news in the world, that God sent the Lord Jesus Christ to live a sinless, perfect life, to die in the place of sinners. Eternity was what matters. Why are these chairs empty? Because people don't give a rip. They don't care. They don't want to be here. They don't even own a Bible to know that they should care. So then, gosh, you come across a passage like 2 Chronicles 7, and you go, man, I want to believe this. And then so someone goes, geez, I feel like, our, I feel like man, Australia is spiritually, they're kind of going down the tubes. I don't know what's going on, you know, and you go, 2 Chronicles 7.14. Or, you try to interpret, and, and this is where I encourage you, read Romans 8. Romans 8 talks a lot about creation, groaning. Why do we see tsunamis, bushfires, and things like that? From sin. And I don't mean a direct correlation between if my people, and therefore we haven't actually called out and humbled ourselves, therefore God sends the bushfire. You have to understand categories. 
the people, God's covenant people, is the church. Everybody is created in the image of God. Okay? In Australia, did you know that? Every human being, not, not animal, they're his creations, but in a special imago day, special creation itself, are human beings. Every single human being, even if they're a nasty person, has worth and dignity and value. Every unborn child has worth and dignity and value. They're created in the image of God. But listen, let me be clear, that doesn't make them humor if my people. They're God's children, listen carefully, in the sense that they're created by God, but spiritually, they need to be born again to be my people. Make sense? So when you say, if my people, all of Australia, no, that doesn't work. If my people who are my covenant people in Australia, there's the difference, you see? You, you can't conflate categories. You can't push things together. Might sound good, might make yourself feel better, help you understand what's going on in the world around us, but it's, it's not actually true. Let me, let me show you a... And, and let me say this too, for our local church, because I, I want to draw one more principle here. I, this is what... If Wyoming Church of Christ is marked by this, praise God. If we're people who constantly humble ourselves, who pray, who seek God, and who turn from sin, I, I would bet my bottom dollar that we would be a compelling community and this church would flourish and grow. I mean, would the Lord not bless us if those things mark us, if we're constantly humbling ourselves? constantly praying, seeking God's face, and turning from sin? If our, if our marriages are looking like that, our relationships together are looking like that, people are going to want to sign up, and people are going to be banging the door down to get in here. God will bless our church if we're marked by those things. But that only comes through a relationship with Christ, you see. So it's not like, okay, what, what four things do I need to do? No, that, that, that only outworks through the Spirit as Christ is working in your life. Let me, let me show you this. I, I came across this on, I go on Facebook like once every five years, but I, I came across this. If you ever Facebook message me, I don't know, email me instead. So, but I came across this Facebook message, not message, Facebook post. Post? What? Yeah, whatever. And it really struck me because this guy, uh, the day I actually moved to Australia, this guy passed, and R.C. Sproul, I've, I've quoted him before, and, and I thought, this is so striking. He says this, isn't it amazing that almost everyone has an opinion to offer about the Bible, and yet so few have studied it? That's, when I came across this not that long ago, I thought, I'm doing the cherry-picked Bible verses. Because I thought, that's exactly it. That, that, that's, and I pray, church, that we'd be people of the book. Look, here's an application for you, very basic. Do we want to be people who really study and think and, 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 and value if this thing is, is reliable or not or trustworthy or not or authoritative or not or clear or not? 8.30, next Sunday, be here. We're talking about all these things. We're teaching you these things. 
you're, you're not going to get sort of vaccinated with them. We can't just like inject this into you. It has to be, you have to put your shoulder to this, study, think, pray. So next week, 8.30, Dan is doing an incredible job. 8.30? Yeah. 8.15. And so I've been really, as we close, I've been really encouraged by doing this cherry-picked Biblers, I hope you have as well. I know I've gotten feedback from a lot of you guys. And let's be people of the book. Let's not be people that are quick and just sort of shooting from the hip what we think God says. Does that make sense? Or going off of our own subjective experiences. But God has disclosed himself in this book. And we can know him through this book. Thank you, Lord, for this book. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for this chance to study your word together. We pray that, Lord, that you would mark this church as people who do humble themselves, who pray, who seek your face, who turn from sin. Lord, may we do those things not out of a sense of duty, but delight, because we know you, because you've, you've revealed yourself to us in your word and we joyfully turn to you knowing that our only hope, our only lasting joy comes from walking with you, knowing you, following you, treasuring you above everything else. Lord, we know that your word says no matter where we're at in this place, if we've turned to you, we can be forgiven of sin and that you who began a good work in us be faithful to complete it to carry it forward until the day of Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we trust and pray. Amen. So if you're here and you are trusting in Jesus for the hope of forgiveness and eternal life, Jesus did live a real life on this earth with flesh and blood. Jesus was, because of sin, not his, but ours, nailed to a cross. And when he was nailed to the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. God the Father made Jesus, the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No greater news than that. And if you're here this morning and you're trusting in that reality and that truth, let's celebrate that together as a church. As we take the little items now, the wafer representing his body, the Jews representing his blood that was spilled on our behalf. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're just checking this out. Look, we think it's wonderful that you're here. Really. Uh, that's not just a throwaway. We really do. But I'd, I'd caution you not just to just participate in this just because it's what we're doing, but to really reflect if you actually know Christ. And so if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, just let those items go by as they, as they